Hi everyone, this is John and TJ. Welcome to our 7th ALM Math Talk for Season 2. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of mathematics. So we're here recording this in mid-November of 2021. So if you are listening to this before the holiday, we hope you have a nice restful holiday coming up. Uh, also, if you're listening before December 8th, you still have time to sign up for the last day of our annual All Learners Conference. Uh, you would go to our website, alllearnersnetwork.com, under events. Erin uh, Oliver is going to be our keynote speaker, and she'll be talking about what all means all means. Uh, good one, right? Uh, we also ha will have video of our two previous keynotes, you, John, on uh, October 14th, and Steve Linewan from our most recent November 11th. So look for those to be posted soon. So today we have the privilege to talk with a really famous mathematician, <laughs> you. Uh, we're going to actually dig into your book, Solving for Why. Uh, I, didn't, I hadn't read the subtitle before, Understanding, Assessing, and Teaching Students Who Struggle with Math, which is published by Math Solutions. I looked, the uh, copyright is 2012, so it's been out for a little while. Uh, and P.S. anniversary. Yeah. P.S. I'm going to need you to sign this after, yeah. after we're done here. <laughs> we worth so much after <laughs> Exactly. So I was looking through the uh, praise for Solving for Why, and I saw a familiar name, Bob Laird, writes. Uh, if you're not familiar with Bob Laird, he's a Vermonter and uh, author himself. But he writes, Solving for Why is the book our mathematics teaching professional profession has long been waiting for. John Tapter has provided classroom teachers, special educators, mathematics coaches, and school leaders an invaluable resource for helping struggling students deeply understand mathematics. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the background of this book, John. How did it come about? Yeah, so uh, I was in New York. Well, I, I had been a math coordinator in southern Vermont for K-12, and then I went to New York to get my Ph.D., and I became a little obsessed with why kids struggle with mathematics. And I actually wanted to focus my dissertation research on that, um, but I had some very unfortunate advice from the people who were on my committee about not doing that. In the end, I, I studied uh, techniques that help with kids living in poverty. But I had this exchange with a pretty famous math educator who will remain nameless. Um, but I said, you know, I'm interested in figuring out why kids have difficulty with some math concepts. And he said, well, gosh, John, if the teacher's doing what she's supposed to be doing, there are no struggling math learners. <laughs> and I said, well, that might be true, but in every classroom in America right now, there are struggling math learners. And there was this uncomfortable silence, and he said, you know, I, I think of you as a pretty smart guy. I don't understand why you're not getting this. And I said, God, I'm thinking the same thing as I'm, <laughs> as I'm sitting here. So... Um, when I finished my work, uh, when I finished my dissertation, I started my own work with trying to understand why kids struggled with math. And I started running a series of courses all over Vermont and Connecticut on uh, struggling math learners. And the premise of the course was that we were going to develop a variety of tools to understand math thinking and that we would get together and talk about what we noticed 
and brainstorm some potential remedies for these. So the premise of the book was really you can't teach a child that's having difficulty until you understand their thinking. And that's how it got started. So that that's actually how you and I met. I don't know if you remember. Uh, there was a teacher I was working with in at Essex Elementary who was taking that class. Uh, oh, yeah. And yeah, she came to me and said, hey, we're she's taking this class. And she said, we're supposed to bring a, a math leader. And I was thinking a principal or someone. But she asked me, and I felt kind of honored. So I went. But I ended up being the only person like that who showed up to the class. So I felt a little foolish. Uh, but <laughs> nah. that was the first time you and I met. Yeah, uh, that was a really interesting class. And one of the things I remember about that specific class was there was this teacher there. I can actually give her a shout. Her name's Dorothy Saka. Mm. Maybe the best middle school math teacher, or one of them anyway, that I've ever met. And uh, people brought samples of student work. And I think she brought sixth grade work to that. I know she brought sixth grade work to that particular uh, session. And she had like samples from 40 or 45 kids and it was on multiplication and division of fractions in word problems. And every single sample she brought showed understanding. And, you know, I said to her, what did you do to these kids? Because this is a particular area of difficulty, and it's rare that 7th or 8th graders show this level of understanding. And she pointed out that the kids had all had a very skillful VMI trained fourth grade teacher and a very skillful VMI trained fifth grade teacher. You know, it was it was laying the seeds down for this all learners project that came years later. What if we drew lines in the sand around what was really important for kids to know? Um, so yeah, that was a that was a really memorable class. That's so interesting. Of course, I know Dorothy, and I've worked with Dorothy as well, worked in her district, so Vermont being as small as it is. So it is. small. We yeah. are so small. So uh, so the book has three sections. There's understanding why students struggle. There's three assessment strategies to identify why students struggle and uh, supporting students who struggle. Uh, can you talk about any of those three uh, sections? And, and I'm, I guess my bigger question is, what are kind of big takeaways you would want uh, a reader to have after reading this book? <laughs> I, the way I think about the world is in terms of big takeaways. So if you spend any time with me at all, you, you know that. Um, I, what I want teachers to take away is if you want to teach children math, particularly children who are having difficulty, you have to understand how they're trying to make meaning of it. And so it's, it's where I first got, created difficulty with myself about algorithms because the whole sense in, in the way that algorithms are taught almost universally is that the teacher is sharing their understanding with a student. And so the student has to borrow the meaning from the teacher both in a, in a broadly philosophical sense, but also uh, as an individual, they have to understand what the teacher's saying the way the teacher says it. And we know that this is not something that happens readily. Uh, we could suggest that half or less than half of the children who are taught by a teacher that says, let me show you how to do it, I'll do it, you do it 100 times, then you'll know 
um, that that's not successful. Uh, you know, we've been talking about in this podcast about algorithms, and there was a suggestion made that um, the difficulty with Amer- the performance of American students in mathematics on tests recently is because of an overemphasizing of conceptual understanding, <laughs> which I think is kind of hilarious that more understanding would lead to lower test scores. Um, but I, but I also wonder. Uh, I wonder what the reasoning is that suggests that if the teacher knows, the student will also know. You know, like what's the transference there? Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm in the middle of reading uh, figuring out fluency by Jennifer Bay Williams yeah. and uh, John Sangiovini. And uh, they have, uh, I've just gotten into the very beginning of the book and they have these 12 fallacies about fluency. And one of them is that you must focus exclusively on uh, conceptual prior to procedural. Um, so that was interesting to me. She was, she was suggesting rather that you need to develop the two together in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about. I knew you would about proceed, the value, the relative value of procedure. But I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, this is a perception of mine. It doesn't seem to me like any criticism about the kind of meaning-based instruction that we advocate. That the U.S. somehow exemplifies that. It that seems crazy to me. It. I, I go to very few places where I see teachers implementing meaning-based instruction, and outside of Vermont, very, very few. So the idea that America's having difficulty with math because of this new math approach is laughable to me because I don't, I don't see this approach in very many places. Is that true for you, too? Yeah, yeah no, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. I think um, most elementary teachers in general not all, but many, uh, rely on a program or uh, something because they're not confident in their own math ability and own ability to kind of facilitate learning. So I think there's a lot of, there's a big, a big chasm between uh, how we prepare students, university students, to be teachers and what teachers actually need to know in order to teach math well. So there's a good analogy in the book about this, this difference between procedure and understanding. Um, so if you live in New York, <laughs> there's this constant conversation. Now, I haven't lived there in, God, 10, 15 years, so maybe it's changed. But when I lived there and previously, if you wanted to have a discussion about how to get from one place to another, people would have these endless conversations about, well, you take the F. Right to union and then you get on the one, no, 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 I take the, right? But it's always a series of steps to get there, mm-hmm. right? So uh, when I lived in New York, I rode around on a motorcycle, and which is the best way to get around in New York, honestly. Now uh, it's all uh, e-bikes. E-bikes, e-bikes work yeah. pretty well, yeah, because yeah. they go fast enough. Uh, bicycles are a little are a little hairy. Um, anyway, so you, ha- you develop a map of the city and so if you want to get from one place to another, you either need a map, which is a kind of model that generates understanding, or you need a series of steps. But the series of steps don't tell you very much aside from how to get from one place to another. And I see the algorithms and mathematical procedures that Beth was talking about last week as the same kind of go here, 
get off this train, go there, get off that train. So I talk a little bit about uh, about that in the book, along with my favorite um, my favorite analogy for what intervention is. Lots of times, um, I have this friend Gary. He's a really smart guy, very capable, but traveling with him in a foreign country is kind of a nightmare. Because despite the fact that I've teased him about this endlessly, if he doesn't know where something is or he needs directions or help, he will walk up to a foreign person and shout at them, <laughs> do you speak English? Not right, as though the louder and slower was somehow going to going to make a difference. And yet, when you observe people's um, genuine attempts to help kids, a lot of it seems like I'm just going to do the same thing louder and slower. And everybody, from the person who's trying to implement this to the, the student themselves, everyone knows this is not a great way to do it. But they also don't know anything else to do. Yeah. So... Solving for why was a first stab at what are some things you might be able to do by understanding first what's going on with the kids. So it's, it's so interesting you make that analogy with the subway system in, in New York City. And for anyone who's who's navigated it, it's it's overwhelming. I, ju- I literally just got back from New York City. And uh, and I have to say, <clears throat> I, I just followed steps. Like I figured out I had to get on the L and get to 8th Street. And then I had to get on the A train and get way up to, I think, 168th. Um, so I had to go uptown. But, but I very much was following steps. I didn't have the understanding to be able, like if there was uh, you know, a broken down train or some issue, I, I wouldn't have known how to make it to my destination. I would have had to totally reorganize. Well, there's, so. a, lot, there's a lot of great analogies to, a lot of great analogies to math. For instance, you could just ask the question, which line is farther west, the one, whatever it is, the one line or the A line? Hmm. And by being able to answer that question, it opens the possibilities for you to find your way. Mm. But again, you need some sense of the map in order to do that. And it, the same is true with all these algorithms that get taught, um, like, for example, the division of fractions algorithm. It's a simple procedure, but habitually teachers will say, yeah, my kids don't know when they're supposed to divide fractions and when they're supposed to multiply. So a little piece of information doesn't really help unless it's useful in context, unless there's understanding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, he, my favorite question, the question I've been dying to ask you is, uh, and I'm really, I have no idea how you're going to answer this, is if you could go back now, it's been 10 years, right, almost, um, if you could go back and do any, redo any parts of this book or change something, what would would you change something first of all, and it, and if you would, what, what how would you change it? Anyone who ever says I would never change a book has some serious soul searching to do. Although I will say, um, it, when I go back and look at articles or smaller things I've written, um, sometimes I even think, oh my! I was just talking about an article for uh, the pre-conference at NCTM. 10 or 15 years ago, and I thought, oh my God, I wish I could have a complete redo, a Mm do-over for that. But I feel less about that for Solving for Why. I was really pleased with 
the tone. It took some convincing uh, with the editors because I wanted to speak to the teachers. It doesn't have a very scholarly narrative voice to it. It's much more accessible. And initially there was some pushback from the editor about that. Hmm. But I think in the end I was really pleased about that. I mean, I would, I would want to redo the things we wrote about clinical interviews. Um, we now talk about something called a targeted interview, which is a smaller version and is really accessible to people like interventionists or even classroom teachers. Um, CRA assessments are interesting, but they take up a big piece of the book. And I think in the end, there might be other things that are more important. The biggest thing, though, is the book is really based on where we were. And I, when I say we, I'm thinking really of all the people that have come together to make the All Learners Network. We were really at the point of, mm, let's think about how we can understand student thinking more. And then we'll brainstorm ideas to make it better. We didn't have clear ideas about what will actually work. So people would say, okay, so now we know this kid has difficulty with place value. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And so we brainstorm that and I would say, well, here are some things that I've done. I didn't have the capacity in those days to say to 12 teachers, well, let's come up with some strategies and test them in the classroom and see which ones really work. And now, you know, years later, and hundreds of trials with various teachers. We have some really good ideas about what works and we're continuing to explore that. In those days, we were really much more about finding assessments. So I'd, I'd like to write more about, uh, about what to do and uh, in one of the chapters, like I should know this, seven maybe, it talks about ways to address or, or thoughts about addressing specific learning challenges and through my work with Glenn Patterson and with um, the Vermont I-Team, things like that, um, I have a lot better idea about, for example, working with children with autism or um, working with, chi with children with complex needs, kids who are deaf and blind or on the spectrum and with specific learning challenges. So I, I'd probably have more to say. But in, in general, I think it's aged pretty well. So then what's next for you in terms of writing or is so is there like a, a for, you know a lot of books go through these versions is there a version 2 for solving for why is there something else is there an extension what's what's kind of next Well so so all learners is trying not successfully at the moment but we're trying to publish a bunch of books uh, unfortunately math solutions has gone through a whole bunch of different life cycles. It was sold to Scholastic, it was sold to Holt Mifflin, and there's so much going on there right now that it seems pretty clear that they, they have three of our manuscripts right now that those aren't going to get published anytime in the near future and we need them to. So uh, we're probably going to look at trying to publish them ourselves and we're, we're working on that. So there's, the, in addition to those three books, there's one about working with children with special needs that I worked on with mostly with Glenn Patterson. There's a book on the high leverage concepts that Sandy Stanhope and Aaron Oliver and I uh, wrote. There's a book on using student math journals K-2 that Laura Lee Wilson and I worked on. 
Um, and of course, there's the book that's online at the All Learners Network, which lots we're getting lots of positive feedback on and is, for the moment, completely free. So if you're out there and you want to understand basic principles that are applied uh, in all learners' approaches, the chapters that are in there are really helpful, I think. So if we have any editors in our listening audience, then they should probably contact us, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, personally, I have two manuscripts that I would love to have time to work on. Um, one is about the development of understanding through a cognitive lens, the notion of brain state and flow mm -hmm. and how concepts develop, productive struggle. And then I, I had this experience where I worked with a woman, an adult, um, down in Connecticut for two years. Uh, she wanted to be a nurse and she flunked basic math five times. It, there's a long story involved, which is why I want to work on that book. But we worked together for two years and she eventually not only passed the assessment to take the math necessary for nursing, but she took an advanced math class and she got to be in it. But her story as a person and her math journey is, uh, to me at least, was incredibly compelling reading. And so I would love to complete some work I've done and publish a book about that as well. It's too bad you don't have, you know, a few more ideas for books. It's <laughs> like a lot of uh, pokers in the, in the fire, as they say. Yeah, well, you know, though, I'm so bored hanging around at the All Learners offices that I have to find some way to fill up my time. So any final thoughts as we start to wrap up this conversation? Yeah, I, I, I've said this a few different ways now. I think the time has come as a group of people who are dedicated to, to being good math teachers to push back on the notion that there are lots of ways to teach math and our way is just one of many good ways to do it. I think that right now the way math is taught that emphasizes adopting student, uh, sorry, teacher thinking and working without meaning in many cases is keeping a lot of kids from being able to do math. And those kids are predictably kids of color, kids who are poor, kids who have uh, various kinds of math challenges. Um, so it's time to say, yeah, you know what, there is a way to teach math that's inclusive of all learners. And we've waited long enough and been polite enough and kind enough. It's time to push that issue. That, that's something I would like to leave the audience with. That's a great last thought. I did. There was one last thought I had, which was when you were talking earlier, it really made me think of Marilyn Burns and her whole kind of listen to learn. And um, so just a shout out to Marilyn Burns and all the great work she's done. In you know, look, she, she was doing all of this 30 years ago. Yeah. And we really build on the kinds of things that she did. It's true. Well, that is all for our podcast for today. Uh, let me do the let me do the closing thing here. Remember, you can find a recording of today's webinar. Oh, actually, 
It's not a webinar today. It's just a podcast. You can That's find right. a recording of today's podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com or on Spotify or Anchor, along with free weekly online lessons, high leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights preserved. Executive producer Sandy, Ms. Elementary Math Stanhope, and John is just thinking Tapper. TJ, the designer Jemison, is the co-host. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert Fly in the Water, Micro Bruce, Stats Loving Laird, who reminds us that we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Join us next time for another ALN Math Talk. We'll see you next time. <laughs>